please open your Bibles to Psalm 16. We'll be looking at Psalm 16 together this morning. And I just marvel that here we are looking at a poem written by one of the greatest and most famous poets of all time, but written 3,000 years ago. We're about to read a 3,000-year-old poem. Isn't that crazy? And, and I think that we're about to be so blessed in the process of doing so. If you have a Bible in front of you, this is on page 453 in the Pew Bible. This is Psalm 16. The Word of God reads, A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your servant, David, who through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit wrote this poem and wrote it for our instruction and wrote it for our edification and wrote it for our comfort and wrote it for us to know the truth, Lord, and, and who wrote it so that we could not fear. Lord, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts, Lord, and that we would not fear, and we would not tremble, and we would not live our lives enslaved to the fear of death. But Lord, work in us by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word, a right view of death. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I have to say up front that this has been a difficult couple of weeks for our church, for 
few different families in the congregation and obviously all those who love those, those families. As we've had three different families suffer the tragic loss of, of loved ones. Um, last two Saturdays have been Saturdays spent uh, at memorials. And our dear sister, Lily Cugini, just also lost her husband, Randy, this, this past week as well. So there's to be another memorial coming. And it's moments and seasons like these that death feels closer than ever. And moments like these where we hurt, and we hurt a lot. But one of the things that also comes with that hurt is a almost just keen sense of the reality of death. There's a sobriety that, that comes over you when you're at a memorial. There's a sobriety that comes over you when you see and look death right in the face. And when the ones around you fall, you realize that you have an enemy you realize that death is real, and you realize that you also are going to die. And it's moments like these that you, you get hit with the, the reality stick that, that though usually you just go about your life and, and you just fill it with things so that you don't ever stop and be still and let your mind wander and, and really think about death and think about the imminency of your death and the imminency of my death. Death is imminent. And every once in a while, you just have that raw and real contemplation of it. And it's, it's so real to you. It's as if someone uttered the words to you that it's, it's cancer. Or it's terminal. Or go home and enjoy what little time you have left. People hear those words and have heard those words, and many of you have heard those words and suffered with those who have heard those words. And it reminded you that life is a vapor. This life is, is short, and the sentence of death hangs over all of us. And for most of us, that can cause fear, can cause panic, pain, despair, discouragement. But what I think we see in the psalm is that's not the only way that we have to look at death. In fact, this psalm would present a different way of looking at death that I'll call facing death unshaken. And it's my hope that through the preaching of God's word that you will see and take home that sort of way of looking at death that, that you will be able to stare death in the face. And, and while there may still be some feelings of timidity and fear, the overpowering sense that will be in your heart is one of joyful, grave-conquering confidence in God.
That's what I want you to have this morning. That's what I want you to go home with this morning. It's what I want you to have when loved ones around you die. And it's what I want you to have as you look at your own death. Joyful, grave-conquering confidence in God. One commentator perfectly summarizes this psalm. Listen to what he says. He says, We are here confronted by a pattern of the unchangeable, believing confidence of a friend of God. For the writer of Psalm 16 is in danger of death. And it is to be inferred from the prayer expressed in verse 1 and the expectation in verse 10. But there is no trace, hear this, there's no trace of anything like bitter complaint, gloomy conflict, or hard struggle. The cry for help is immediately swallowed up by an overpowering and blessed consciousness and a bright hope. He says, there reigns in the whole psalm a settled calm, an inward joy, and a joyous confidence, which is certain that everything that it can desire for the present and for the future, it possesses in its God. What a wonderful summary of this psalm. Let's look at someone who has this joyful, grave, conquering confidence in God, that we might learn it, that we might live with it, and that we might face death unshaken. The main idea is that in Psalm 16, we see five simple convictions, five simple convictions that enable us to look death in the face with joyful, grave, conquering confidence in God. The blanks are left there for you to fill in and follow with me as we go. The first of these simple convictions that enables us to look at death with joyful, grave-conquering confidence in God is this, that he is able. That he is able. That God is able. The, 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 the foundational conviction for any hope of, of looking at death and overcoming death and conquering death comes from the fact that you believe that God exists and that he is able. Look at verse 1. We see the, the subject of our psalm cry out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Let me ask you something. Would you take refuge in one whom you thought could not deliver you? If a storm is coming, are you going to run to a place that you know will not be safe and cannot offer you shelter? Are you going to cry out to a God if he cannot deliver you? Why would you do that? And so we see this foundational conviction is this. He's saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Why take refuge in this God? Because this God is able. He's able to deliver me. If this God does not exist and we die, it all goes dark, nothing ever mattered. But if this God exists and he can deliver from death, then it is worthwhile for us and right for us and wise for us to run to this God and to cry out to this God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. God is able. When you look at death, do you have that simple conviction? Do you have that simple conviction that God is able? When you think about your death, do you think that God is able? 
The second simple conviction that enables us to look at death with joyful, grave-conquering confidence is this. I am his. I am his. We see this in verses 2 through 4. God's ability or power alone, God's ability or power alone does not guarantee for us that he will exercise that power for good on our behalf. So it's one thing to know that God is able, but it's another thing to know that I am God's. If I am not God's, if I do not belong to him, what reason or hope do I have that he will use that power for my good? And so this second conviction follows from the first. He is able and I am his. And this is even forms the basis for the plea that the subject of our psalm is making. Preserve me, O God, for, for in you I take refuge. Meaning you are the one that I run to. I am yours. I run to you because I belong to you, Lord. I look death in the face and I run to God and cry out to him to deliver me. If you run to the Lord and take refuge in the Lord, you are communicating that you are his. And you can can know that you are his when you love him and run to him and when you love his people. And that's essentially what the the subject of our psalm is saying. So notice in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. What a glorious confession, right? I am yours. I run to you and I say to you that you are my Lord. You, Yahweh, this is the all caps if you're looking at it, which means it's the divine name, yod heh vav heh. This is the name that the, that the Lord revealed to Moses. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so in the face of death, where do you run? You do not run anywhere else other than to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You run to the God who is and was and is to come. You run to the God who brought his people people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You run to the God who is able and you run to that God and you tell him that I am yours, Lord. You are my Lord. None of these other gods are my Lord. You are my Lord. The psalmist right here has confessed with his mouth that Yahweh is Lord. That's where he has started and that's the basis of his conviction and confidence that he is, that, that I am his. But not only do we see that, we see that he has not just said that with his mouth, but, mouth, but that's, the, that's the overflow of his heart. Look what he says in, in, in that verse as well. He says that I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's a heart that loves God. That's a heart that, that belongs to God. He's acknowledging that that, that Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, 
You're the giver of all good gifts. Every good and perfect thing comes from you. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. You are the fountain of life. You are the well of salvation. You are the the everlasting and eternal God. You are the self-existing. You are the independent. You're the one relying on none, yet providing to all. You're the one receiving from none, yet giving to all. All life and every good comes from your omnipotent hand, O Lord. You are the provider. We are just the takers full and glorious, confident refuge does this subject take in the Lord. There is no good for me outside of you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, however, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He knows that the Lord is able and he knows that I am his and he loves God and he seeks after God. And we see that he also doesn't just love and seek after God, but he also doesn't go the way of others who who are seeking after other gods. Look at what he says here in verse four. He describes others. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And then you know what he says in the very next verse? The Lord is my chosen portion. So let me just replay that for you because I don't think you caught it. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God are going to multiply. I'm not going to worship those gods. I'm not going to sacrifice to those gods. When I see death, I'm not going to run to those gods, even though the people around me are doing that. I'm going to run to the Lord. I won't even take the name of those gods on my lips. You, Lord. And he says, Lord, and he says, Lord, two or three more times. The name on his lips is one. Is Lord, you Lord. This is, this is his love for God. This is his faithfulness to God. This is his allegiance to God. He will not go after another. But his love is not just for God, it's also for his people. And when he says that, I have no good apart from you, it's almost like he wants to qualify that to, to make sure that, that we, he doesn't mean that he doesn't also love God's people. When he says that, when he, when he says that uh, I have no good apart from you, he goes right into the next thing saying, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So Lord, I love you. Lord, I run to you. Lord, I take refuge in you. I have no other God but you. I have no other good apart from you. But also, Lord, I love your people, Lord. I love your people, Lord. They are my delight. Your people are the delight of my soul, Lord. And and friends, that's the conviction of a person who has taken refuge in the Lord. That's the conviction of a person who has the Lord as their God. You see, it doesn't make any sense when people say that they love God or they love Jesus, but they don't love the church or they don't love God's people. It makes no sense. Here he's saying that the saints that are in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love them. I delight with them. I want to be with them. I want to sing praises to the one true God with them. And so it doesn't make any sense when people say that they love God and then they won't 
spend their life sharing their love of God with saints whom God loves as well, coming regularly, lifting up praise with them, running together to worship the one true and living God. So may we love the church. May you love the faces in this room. And when you wake up and you don't feel like going to church in the morning, may, may your love for God and your love for his people compel you to come because you know that there's nothing better that you could do on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning, than to come and to worship the one true and living God. There's nothing that says, I am his, like that. I belong to you. I belong to your people. I love your people. I am yours. The subject of our psalm has a grave conquering confidence that's built on the conviction that God is able and that I am his. This leads to a third conviction. Confessing and proclaiming that I am his leads him to the realization of something very closely related, and that is the conviction that he is mine. Oh, I love it. It's so good. Look at what he says here in the next couple of verses in, in five and six. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What's he saying here? He's, he's saying that, that not only am I yours, Lord, but you are mine. You are mine. That's unbelievable, God, that the one who made everything, sustains everything, created everything, gave life and breath to everything, is, is mine. It's incredible. He says here that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. To speak of this chosen portion and to speak of the, the cup, you can think also closely related to the idea of your lot in life. This is, this is what has fallen to you. This is your lot. This is your inheritance. This is what has, has come your way. The cup uh, in scripture uh, is oftentimes spoken of as sort of like this cup of destiny. And the wicked, it says, drink a cup from the Lord, but it's the cup of his wrath. Look at what, what David says in Psalm 11, verse 6. He says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. What's coming to them? What are they about to receive? What is their inheritance? What is their portion? What is their destiny? The destiny of the wicked is fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. Judgment and wrath. But what is the cup? What is the portion? What is the destiny of the righteous? Oh, it's beautiful. It's glorious. What is it? Look at what he says here. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Friends, your portion, your cup, your lot is God himself. And this is exactly what Kenny was mentioning in communion. This is exactly what John Piper talks about when he says God is the gospel. The wonderful thing that you and I get is God himself. 
Why would you chase after just the thing he made when you could have the maker of the thing? How idiotic. What? Just take the lesser and miss the greater? If you chase after the greater, you get both. How will he who gave his son for us not also along with him graciously give us all things? You have a beautiful inheritance, believer. You have a beautiful inheritance, church. You have, by faith, you have God himself. And he is able and you are his and he is yours. Enjoy that. What's going to offer you joy when life seems to be falling apart? What's going to offer you stability and confidence, even grave-conquering confidence? It's the fact that you have God. And if you have God and he is yours and you are his, then he is with you. And that leads us to our next conviction the Lord is with me. We see this in verses 7 and 8. The Lord is with me. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The subject of our psalm knows God is able. He knows that he is God's. He knows that God is his. And that having God, he delights already. And he rests with firm confidence that I will not be shaken. The God who is mine, the God whom I belong to, is a God who goes with me. Which is exactly what we sing as well, which I love. He, it says here, is at my right hand meaning that he is in, 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 this, in this prominent position to protect me. He is there. He goes with me. He is at my side. He will take care of me. He will protect me. He is able, and I am his, and he is mine, and he is with me. And so I can look at death with joyful, grave, conquering confidence in God. We should also notice that the, the, the subject of our psalm is blessing the Lord. And we see that this, this God going with him in the, in the, uh, one of the ways that, two ways that we see that practically is that God counsels or guides the subject of this psalm and also that he then is there to protect I mentioned the protection already, but we should consider this guiding as well. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I'm looking death in the face. What do I do? What do I feel? What's going to happen to me? How do I respond to this? These people are, are, are surrounding me. These people want to, to kill me. Lord, what do I do? He runs to the Lord. He takes refuge in the Lord. He seeks the counsel of the Lord. And it says here that in the night, in the night, and so we had Kevin sharing a few psalms ago, right? It, oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And here we have the subject of this psalm saying, oh, Lord, in the night, in the night I run to you. In the night I, I seek your counsel and you counsel me. 
I think a perfect example of this is in Psalm 119, where, where we see there the psalmist say, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? How can I know? You run to the Lord. You read his word. You meditate on his word. You chew on his word. You digest his word. And he counsels you. And he, and he takes that heart of yours and that conscience of yours and he, and he takes this scripture and he just cleans it up and he just, you just filter and you begin to think the thoughts and intentions of your heart are, are not just you know, wandering like crazy, but they're trained and they're disciplined by the word of God. And so God's counsel to you through his word and your heart trained by his word also bears witness and leads you. That's what I think is being talked about here. In the night also, my heart instructs me. And he goes on to say, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. You, we can see that the subject of our psalm loves the Lord, running to the Lord, running to spend time with the Lord, even when everything's about to crumble. He meditates and he's counseled. And he sets the Lord before him always. And this brings great confidence, as it says, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He will protect me. He will guide me. This will not result in me being put to shame. He will save me. And this leads us to this last conviction it's the conviction that he will save me. And this is the most important conviction, but it follows from and, and builds off of the others. God is able and I am his and he is mine and he is with me and so he will save me. He will save me. Look at what he says here in verses 9 and 10. He says, therefore, right after saying that I shall not be shaken, he says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I think that the counsel of the word of God has made it known to our subject that he will not be abandoned to Sheol and he will not see corruption. That's why he can say that my flesh, my flesh, my body, my physical body dwells secure. He has confidence that God will save him. And if we see that put Put negatively in verse 10, right? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Uh, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's two negative ways of, of putting that salvation and deliverance. But then in verse 11, I think we get three positive ways. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's glorious. What a hope. What an amazing hope. Let's think about it a little bit deeper. Let's look, he says here in verse 10, 
that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And notice the first word in that verse, in verse 10 of chapter 16, is, is, is for. So that for is giving the reason or the explanation of what comes before. And when he says, my flesh also dwells secure, he's going to explain exactly what he means by that in verse 10. How can he say that his flesh is going to dwell secure? What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that God will not let my soul... Uh, be abandoned to Sheol, nor let his Holy One see corruption. Maybe even there, though, we have to slow down and think about it a little bit more. Sheol, or in the Greek, Hades, is the realm of the dead. And so for it to say, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, uh, some people think that David is, is the author here, and he's just saying that God won't let him die on some specific occasion where he's near death, okay? Uh, other people argue that this, this idea of being abandoned, abandoning my soul to Sheol carries with it the idea of, of being left behind that, that, or, or, or being left to a place for a very long time that you, know, that you could consider that being abandoned, and so they would say that David is the author, and David is speaking here, and he's saying that God won't let his soul stay in Sheol forever. But one day, God will take David's soul out of Sheol, out of the place of the departed spirits, and bring that up to be with him. And while I think that that is true generally, I don't think that that's what's being said in this verse. Others argue that the phrase, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, indicates that the subject of this psalm will die and his soul will enter Sheol, but it won't be there very long. It won't be left there. And we get, I think, a time indication in the next verse because it says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The idea of this word, for, for, that is translated corruption uh, is the, the decaying of your corpse, which does not happen immediately. But uh, if we, we, we take the example of Jesus and Lazarus, Jesus showed up, he was late, they, and, then, and I forget if it was Mary or Martha, said to him that, Lord, it, it, it's been four days. He's, it's it's going to be, there's going to be a smell. King James Version, you know, he stinketh, right? Because <laughs> physiologically, right, like something happens where your body begins to decay, and by the fourth day, there's already a smell that, that would fill a tomb, and you roll that stone away, it would come at you, it, you would smell it immediately. So this is that physical process that's being talked about here. And so the idea, I think, that is being clearly communicated when it says that you will not let your Holy One see corruption, you will not allow his flesh to decay, is speaking about his physical body. And if it's speaking about his physical body not decaying, which would be uh, the experience of a person at, at, the, at the very least by the fourth day, then we have good reason, I think, to understand that this is speaking about someone other than David. Do you guys follow that? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol 
or let your Holy One see corruption. I think if we, if we think about those two together, then the amount of time that the soul is spent in Sheol is the same amount of time that the body is spent in the grave before it sees corruption. Did that happen with David? Did, did David experience rescue from Sheol? Before four days, did David's physical body come back to life? You see, it's natural for us to, to read this poem and to think David, because David is, it says a psalm of David, and it says, I, 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 I. But when in the natural course of reading this, you look and some things are said that can't possibly be true of the life of David, what does that make you think? This has to be talking about someone else. Or God's a liar. And it's exactly what we see the New Testament authors do as they look at this psalm. Turn with me over to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he's preaching Christ, and he's saying that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, this is verse 22, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, says, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he says that God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, here's our psalm. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand I may, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Why is that significant? Because we now understand what the psalm was talking about. Peter's saying, this could not have been true of David. We know he died, he's buried, his tomb is here. And so he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, David being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, to David, that he would set one of David's descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Do you understand the argument that Peter is making? He's saying that this text cannot refer to David. This text cannot be communicating the first person experience of David. Because this did not happen to David. We still got his tomb. His body's still in there. A thousand years in there. It's been in there. But the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus his soul was not abandoned to Sheol, and his flesh did not see corruption. He was raised before that fourth day. He was raised on the third day. 
in accordance with the scriptures, it says. And I thought about that phrase a lot. Where did it predict that Jesus would rise on the third day? And this morning I was thinking about it, and I was looking at this, and I'm like, well, if corruption's on the fourth day, when would be the day to deliver Christ? On the third day, so that he would not see corruption. This is all talked about. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. Him entering into the presence of God and being filled with gladness in the presence of God and at his right hand. It's all there. It's all there. Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 makes a, a pretty much the same argument. He says concerning Christ as Paul is preaching, he says, and as for the fact that he, I'm looking at uh, verse 34 of Acts 13, Paul's preaching says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, citing the scriptures. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And then, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And Paul says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So Peter and Paul, are looking at this verse and saying this verse was speaking about Jesus, not about David. And we, we understand that because when Peter quotes it, you guys, he quotes both parts of that verse in verse 10. Verse 10 reads, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And I think if you just look at that, and you're just focused on the context of Psalm 16, you don't have any indication of a, a shift in, in referent there. It seems like they're in parallel, and, and my soul and your Holy One are talking about the same person. And if that's the case, and that's what Peter says, because Peter specifically applies the first part of that verse as well, saying that Jesus' soul did not see Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's woven together a statement from verse 9 where the psalmist has my flesh will dwell secure. Then he combines that with nor see corruption and he says that both of those are true of Jesus. So a statement in verse 9 about his flesh, statement in verse 10, the first half about his soul and a statement in the second half of verse 10 about his body. All Jesus He's the subject of this psalm. And he's the one who demonstrates perfectly, gloriously for us the confident, joyful, grave-conquering confidence. When we look at the Lord Jesus, let's just think about this psalm in closing through the eyes of the first-person speech of Jesus. Jesus knows that God is able he looks forward to his death on the cross, and he knows that his God is able. He, he knows that God is able to deliver him, and he entrusts himself to him who judges justly. He knows that I am his. He knew that he belonged to his father. That's why he can call his father my father. 
He knows that, that the Father is his, right? In those same words, my Father. He delights in the Father. He had the Father as his portion. He did all that he did to please and honor the Father. For him to have the Father and for him to have the Spirit was everything for him. And he also loved the saints. And he came to that death because he would die in their place. And so he must have loved them and he must have delight in them because they are the precious gift that the Father has given to the Son to, to save and rescue and redeem. And he knew, he knew that the Lord was with him. And so he cried out to him for deliverance. He knew that the Father's presence would go at his side. He says in John chapter 8, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own ability, uh, on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I love that. Back in our psalm, He always set the Lord before Him, He always did the things that were pleasing to Him. And we see that He also has the confidence and the conviction that he will save me. Jesus says in Matthew 16 or, or Mark 8, actually, just as Kenny read, he, he told his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter rebuked him Far be it from you, this will never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why is it that he must? Because of Psalm 16. Because of Isaiah 53. Because of a lot of passages. But he must go and be killed and be rejected and be crucified. And he must be raised on the third day. Jesus knew the scriptures. Jesus knew what the Messiah came to do. He knew that he came to save sinners. He knew that he came to suffer and die, to seek and save the lost. He knew that he came to pay the penalty, to bear the, the wrath of God in our place that we might be forgiven so that we might have our sins uh, cleansed from us. He came to wash us and redeem us. And he was beaten, and he was mocked, and he faced his certain death. And in the face of that death, he had a grave-conquering confidence in God. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured the despising. He endured the shame. He endured the crucifixion. Because he delighted in God and delighted in the saints of God. He went to his death and he had nails bashed through his hands. He had a crown of thorns hit on his head. And he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that would bring us peace with God was put on him. And he endured it all. And he died. And his soul went to Sheol. And his body was laid to rest in a grave. But three days later... Since death could not hold him to fulfill the promise of not being abandoned to Sheol or letting his flesh see corruption, he shattered the shackles of death, conquered the schemes of the devil, and rose from the grave. He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our confidence. 
He conquered the grave, and he says that everyone who believes in him, that he too will raise them to be with him forever. So that the pleasures and joy at the right hand of the Father that the Son will forever enjoy. He says, you, I'm going to take you and bring you with me to enjoy that forever. Now you get it. You have a beautiful inheritance. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The lines have truly fallen for you in pleasant places if you are in Christ. I just want to close and say, if you're not in Christ, come to him. Run to him. He invites you. He says, believe in me. And if you believe in him, you can have this same grave conquering confidence in God. Do not leave this place without that confidence. He died on the cross to reconcile you to the Father. He rose from the grave to prove that, that you too, if you trust in him, will conquer death as well. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of your word. We are in awe of the fact that, that you've revealed all these things to us and that by hearing with faith, Lord, we can have that same conviction, that conviction, Lord, that says that you are able, that, that we are yours, that you are ours, that you are with us. And so we will not be shaken, Lord. You will save us. And because of the resurrection of your son, because of that one, that holy one of yours, your son, who did not see decay and rose from the grave on the third day, because of him, we can have life eternal. And one day we'll hear his voice, Lord. Lord Jesus, one day we're going to hear your voice, the voice of the son of man. And all the dead who hear the voice will come out of their graves and they will rise and stand and give an account to you, Lord Jesus. May we have confidence, Lord, that we will not go to a resurrection of judgment. May we have confidence in you, Lord, that you will bring us to a resurrection of life and that we will enjoy, O oh Father, with your Son and by the power of your Spirit, that fullness of pleasure that is in beholding your face, knowing that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We look forward to that and long for that day, Lord. Help us, oh God, to live lives to the glory of you, Lord, to the glory of God in all that we do, facing death unshaken. We ask in your mighty name, amen.